Hi, my name is Shannon, and I'm a sinner. I take no pride in that fact, of course, but I do take great comfort in the reality that God sent his one and only son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, into the world that I might be forgiven and that you also and that all people might be forgiven, that we might be invited into God's kingdom and that we might be empowered by his spirit to live obediently and with joy. Thanks be to God. Uh, see Mia back there. Welcome back from three weeks in Uganda. Mia, we prayed for you three or four Sundays ago up here. Glad you're back and good to see you. And we look forward to hearing stories and all kinds of great things. And I think we will hear. Yeah. Uh, happy spring break, as Gladys said. Uh, lots of folks are away and traveling. Good. Uh, it's a great thing to be able to do after two years of COVID. It's also great to have some spring break college students up on the platform this morning. So thanks to you guys. We're continuing this morning with our study of the Gospel of Mark. Yes, one of those college students who came home said, still? Yes, uh, we're intending to cover every chapter, every passage, every verse, and so far we're accomplishing that. Today we'll dig into chapter 13 of, of Mark's Gospel, which honestly will be like the proverbial biting off more than one can chew, like this, this. Or this, yeah, that's what we're in for this morning. That's what we're going to be attempting uh, in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel, which could easily be broken up itself into a five or six week series or even a 15 week college course. We're going to try to do it in two shots this morning and next Sunday, but first and particularly because we've got more than we can handle, let's pray together. Lord, help us to hear what you would have us hear this morning, to see what you would have us see, to grow as you would have us grow, to become the people you would have us become, and to love as you would have us love. Forgive our sometimes hard hearts and closed minds and clenched fists. Help us to welcome your word, to welcome your spirit, and to welcome your way. I pray that as my words are consistent with your word, may they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are inconsistent in any way, may they be passed over, immediately forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 13. Uh, buckle up. Here we go. Chapters 11 and 12 of Mark's gospel are full of what biblical scholars call controversy or conflict stories with various people coming against Jesus, trying to trap Jesus, trying to embarrass Jesus, eventually trying to kill Jesus. Group after group after group through Mark chapter 11 and chapter 12, you may remember. And much of that, most of that happens in and around the temple and Jerusalem. All of it happens in Jerusalem where Jesus has made this journey, you remember in Mark's gospel, south from Galilee through Samaria over uh, to the east of the Jordan River and back into Judea. In chapter 14, Mark records the various happenings of the Thursday before Jesus is crucified that we call Holy Thursday. Chapter 15, Mark records those events that happen on the Friday that we call Good on which Jesus was actually crucified. Chapters 11 through 15 of Mark's gospel all happen in the last week of Jesus' life. A full one-third of Mark's gospel happens in the last few days 
of Jesus' life. Again, chapters 11 and 12 are mostly controversy stories between Jesus and others and about God's judgment. Chapters 14 and 15 cover the day before Jesus' crucifixion and the day of Jesus' crucifixion, respectively. And in the middle of that section of Mark's gospel is chapter 13, in which Mark records this variety or collection, which is probably what it is, of sayings and conversations and statements of Jesus that mostly pertain to end times, to the eschaton or eschatology, to apocalyptic themes. In fact, chapter 13 of Mark's gospel is often called by scholars the little apocalypse, the book of Revelation being the big apocalypse, Daniel being in the Old Testament, the only apocalyptic literature there. Mark is the little apocalypse, or sometimes called the synoptic apocalypse, because the almost exact verbatim chapter happens in, Mark, in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel also. It's Jesus' longest teaching in Mark's gospel. The storyline in Mark's gospel moves, rapid, moves rapidly from one thing to the next, from one person to the next, from one conversation or place to the next. Quickly, Jesus is always on the move, you may remember in Mark's gospel, continually doing things. But here in chapter 13, Jesus comes to a stop. Mark sort of takes the narrative quickly, 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 and then bam, Jesus stops Jesus talks, Jesus teaches. I mentioned a couple of months ago, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, when we were going through uh, chapter 12 of Mark's gospel, that, and we got to that passage where Jesus is questioned in the temple area about what about, the, what about marriage and the resurrection, and I mentioned that I had never preached on that passage before, and at the end, I will probably never preach on it again. I don't think I've ever preached from Mark 13 either. Or maybe if I have just a tiny bit, a manageable bit, because it's hard to understand. It's hard to digest, and when we read it in a moment, you'll see why. It's hard to know with confidence exactly what to do with all of that in our age. If a person is looking for biblical material about the eschaton, about the end times, about prophecies about the end of the world, then Mark 13 is a natural place to go fishing. But how many of us are looking for that material? Really? How many of us are looking regularly for that material? I see your two hands. One hand and one, not your two hands. Most Christians probably fall into one of two camps with regard to end time studies. There, they are, there are those who seem to always be focused on such things and then those who are never focused on such things. There are those who may give this broad subject more attention than it deserves, if that's possible. And there are those who give it less attention than it deserves, if that's possible. Which are you? Which camp do you fall into? Maybe that deserves some thought as we read through uh, Mark 13 this morning. So now, beginning at verse 1, listen closely, this is God's word. As Jesus was leaving the temple... Again, back and forth into the temple. Made this trip down from Galilee to Jerusalem to visit the temple. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And they just, I mean, they'd seen it before. Jesus had seen it before. The temple was the center of all things. They've been spending days in and around 
It's sort of like us with the Golden Gate Bridge. We may make a trip across it, take, a, take some tourist friends to it, walk across it, ride our bikes, stand on the shore and go, wow, that is amazing. We kind of take it for granted in pictures and scenes. But when we get up close, we go, wow, it's huge. And what a magnificent feat of architecture and engineering. The temple in Jerusalem was even more impressive. It actually had been, there were actually three temples, you may know. The first one was built by Solomon about a thousand years before Jesus during Israel's really only prominent time as a nation you don't want to mess with was during the reigns of David and Solomon about a thousand years before Jesus, lasted almost a hundred years. This period of Israel's prominence as the most dominant nation in that part of the world. And during that time, they built this amazing, fantastic temple. It was uh, among the most amazing known structures and maybe the most impressive temple in all of the world at that point. And many cultures, as you know, have built temples of different sorts. The Babylonians destroyed Israel's beloved temple in the 580s when they came in, Solomon's temple. When the people of Israel returned for their, from their approximately 50-year Babylonian captivity, they got to work right away with the blessing of Cyrus the king and under the leadership of a governor named Zerubbabel whose name is often attached to a new temple, a second temple that was built in the, around 520, 510 B.C. Fast forward to the decades immediately prior to Jesus' birth and the reign of a one known as Herod the Great who among other things loved building projects, infrastructure projects, projects that would cause his name to remain great and glorious on the earth long after his time. And among other things, he built, refurbished, enlarged a temple in Jerusalem that was grander than any building on the face of the earth at, time, at that time. Filled with jewels and gold. It radiated, it was said, all over Jerusalem and beyond. In its size and in its appearance and its materials and its height and the sheer, and you can see from that image, it was acres and acres and acres, this platform that it was built on. And then went up many, many stories high. It was huge. And this temple was not only impressive because of its architecture and engineering and opulence, but also because it was not, not, not only the religious, but also the social and the cultural and the psychological and the political center and focal point of the people of Israel. It was like the White House and the U.S. Capitol and the Supreme Court and the National Cathedral and the Federal Reserve Building in Washington, D.C., the New York Stock Exchange and Levi Stadium <laughs> all rolled into one. It was that important to the people of Israel. It was big. This is the context of Mark chapter 13. The place, the time, the context in which it was set. So verse one, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said, look teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Some of the stones were reported to be as long as 40 feet, as wide as 80 feet, as deep as 10 or 12 feet, weighing as much as a million pounds. 
a million pounds. You can still see some of those on the base structure of the temple that still exists in Jerusalem today. That's an image of the wailing wall that still exists, original temple where you can go to and pray. And you see these massive stones. How did they even cut them, much less get them into place? No one knows. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. What? Under King Herod's direction, this third temple began being built in 20 B.C., 20 years before Jesus was born. Construction would go 46 years to the year 26 B.C. It was just completed a handful of years before Jesus is speaking in Mark 13. And as Jesus spoke, all of that's in people's minds. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another Every one of them will be thrown down. Who would say that? What Jew would say that? Now at verse 3, the scene shifts a bit. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Jesus privately. And four things are worth noting about just this half verse. Jesus sitting conveys that he possesses authority because he sits while he teaches. Second, now Jesus and his disciples with him are on the Mount of Olives, which was just on the other side of this deep valley, the Kidron Valley, from which they can see very clearly across the Kidron Valley about a mile, the glorious temple of the people of God. Third, Mark says very intentionally here that Jesus was opposite the temple. Very particular language, just as Mark tells us in chapter 12, that Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Jesus sitting in judgment of how most people, and especially Israel's elite, called attention to their own giving. Jesus didn't just sit near the place of offering, but he sat opposite it. Do you understand? And Jesus now was opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives, opposed to everything in some ways that the temple was about or had come to be about. And fourth and finally, Mark mentions Peter, James, John, and Andrew being with Jesus. These were the first four people you remember in Mark's gospel whom Jesus called and who followed him. And now as things get really thick and difficult and mysterious and edgy and stressful and tense, They are still with Jesus, pressing through, even though they don't understand everything. They ask Jesus, verse 4, tell us when will all of these things happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? When and what? When will these things, in other words, you're throwing down of every stone that's a part of the great temple, the construction, all of of which still or was just recently completed, And what will be the sign? They were into signs. The Old Testament had lots of signs. What would be the sign of what you'd say, Jesus, will happen? When and what? And now this whole looking toward the future, mysterious, perilous, apocalyptic thing ramps up a bit at verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you about the what and the when. Many of you will, many will come in my name claiming I am he, I am, 
and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of war, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation as they are today, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines as there are today. These are the beginning of birth pains. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will be deceived by imposters and charlatans and fakes and false prophets and power-hungry leaders and money-hungry schemers, some even claiming divine anointing, divine blessing, and even divine status, Jesus says. And we can think about who some of these people are in our world today or have been or beware of those who may be in the future. I probably, like you, get emails that I didn't ask for from various organizations and ministries. And over the last couple of weeks, I've gotten two or three who have echoed something that some of my friends have said, and maybe you've heard, oh, this war, oh, Putin, Antichrist, Oh, this is predicted in the scriptures. Oh, it's about to happen. Oh, Jesus must be coming back. That's what this thing in Ukraine is all about. Jesus is about to come back. Do not be alarmed, Jesus says. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. These are the beginning of birth pains. And you know that babies are not ordinarily born at the beginning of birth pains. There's a lot of pain and discomfort involved for a woman, so I've read, so I've heard, so I've witnessed along the way in simply being pregnant and moving along the journey of pregnancy. I don't need to go into the details. And then after nine months, there is even more pain, a different kind of pain, a new pain, contractions that come in waves and they get worse and worse and worse and more difficult, and more difficult, and more difficult. But those still are just the beginning, Jesus says, of birth pains that lead up to the final event. And so also with this event about which Jesus speaks. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. And now now verse 9. And I'll pick up the pace. You must be on your guard, you, Jesus' disciples. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. We saw that word a lot in Acts. Now Jesus is telling them before Acts that they will be witnesses. And the gospel must be preached to all nations. Sidebar, over in Matthew's gospel, this same verse says, the gospel must be preached in all nations, and then Jesus will come. And that verse, frankly, has been taken terribly out of context, as if it's up to us to initiate or to welcome back Jesus and to cause him to come, and not until we do something in particular, make the gospel known, will Jesus come back, as if God's left the return of Jesus in our hands. That's not what this means. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, and it would be to all of the nations that were known in their part of the world by this time. 
Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry, be, worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. It doesn't sound like fun at all. Fun is the measure of so much in our lives and our world today, is it not? Doesn't sound like fun. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Those couldn't have been Jesus' words because he wasn't writing, of course. This is Mark's most explicit editorial comment in his gospel. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. And this abomination that causes desolation is mentioned three times verbatim in the Old Testament book of Daniel, which is the only truly apocalyptic book in the Old Testament. And there in Daniel, the abomination that causes desolation refers almost certainly to the abomination wrought by the Greek or Hellenistic king Antiochus IV, the eighth of the Seleucid kings, against the temple on Judaism in the second century BC, when, among other things, Antiochus, just to taunt the Jewish people whom he despised, slaughtered a pig deeply offensive to Jewish people right in the middle of their temple and let the juices of the pig flow everywhere. And the Jewish people couldn't have been any more abhorred or offended. Causing the temple to become deserted or desolate. And Jesus recalls this event as a symbol that points to something equally outrageous and offensive to the temple and to Judaism in the future. Jesus implies that this abomination that will cause the deserting of the temple or Jerusalem or the deserting of the temple and Jerusalem is still to come. It is coming. Verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, Mark's editorial comment, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no, let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress. The Greek word translated distress is thlipsis. Thlipsis. And that word means oppression or trouble or suffering or persecution or distress or most famously in Christian history, tribulation though it's more of a common noun here than a proper noun. But we've latched on to that word when it is translated tribulation, though its meaning is much broader than simply one event. But it means distress, as the NIV translates, or persecution, or suffering, or hardship, or oppression. Pray that this will not take place in winter, because these, those will be days of distress, tribulation. Unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. Jesus is talking about something, presumably an event, that will be more cataclysmic than anything that has happened since the chaos was ended through God's creation. 
and more cataclysmic than anything that's happened in history or that will ever, ever, ever happen again. If the Lord had cut short those days, verse 20, in other words, if the Lord had not shown mercy, or if the Lord does not show mercy, no one would survive. But if for the sake of the elect, Mark was a Presbyterian, but for the sake of the elect whom he had chosen, he has shortened them, in other words, those days. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. And then Mark puts together a little sort of package of quotes and ideas. And this is the most quoted section in all of Mark's gospel from the Old Testament. It's just laden with Old Testament imagery and ideas and scriptures and verses and words that those of us who are not Jewish and deeply Jewish understand less than any other part of Mark's gospel. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. There was this thinking that stars had power and that stars were ways that the gods communicated, sort of like maybe an event that happened around Jesus' birth. And the heavenly bodies will be shaken. In my mind, our minds can't help but go to the hours when Jesus was hanging on the cross and, for, and during that time when the sun stopped and the earth quaked. In those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Verse 26, at that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds, clouds being associated in the scriptures with God, with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And there's more in chapter 13 of Mark's gospel for the sake of time and because we just have limited time in these gatherings on Sunday morning. I'm going to cut it off there for today and highlight several points and also some conclusions as we ask, where does all of this lead us who regularly profess what we believe with the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe, we believe. The third day he, Jesus, rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. In other words, he will come again. Where does this leave us who profess such things? Let me go back to where we started at the temple. What's been known as Herod's temple was actually destroyed. And completely destroyed. And it's never been rebuilt. In the year 70 AD. By Titus. By a Roman emperor. At the end of what's called the Jewish war. A little less than a generation after Jesus spoke these words. The temple was destroyed. In some ways confirming that the dwelling place of God was no longer a building. In other words a temple. But a person. Jesus. And through his indwelling spirit, also a people, the church, not a building, but a community. Next, 
Jesus does say in Mark 13 that certain things must happen. Elijah must come, he has. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be raised, he has. The temple will be destroyed, it has been. The disciples will face persecution, they have and continue to. The gospel must be preached to all nations. It is. It certainly has been to all the nations that were known at that time to those people and is continuing to be preached to all people. Temple religion came to an end. God moved his residence on earth from a building to his son and from his uh, son and his spirit to his people. Therefore, the temple as institution was replaced, has been replaced. That is first and the coming to fruition of the things that Jesus said, the authority with which he spoke and the reliability of his words is second. Third, there are still future events to come. History is headed somewhere from a Christian and biblical worldview. And that for which we wait has no parallel in human history. It does not and it will not. We should keep that in mind. Most of us live with a linear or a circular rather worldview. History is just repeating itself. We're just going around the sun, going around the sun, going around the sun. But a biblical view is far more linear and has a destination and we're going somewhere. And there are events along that way and one final cataclysmic event. Fourth, apart from the mercy and grace of God and Jesus, we have no hope of surviving that event. We have no hope, nor does anyone else. Fifth, we should be very careful to identify particular events, actions, people with the coming again of Jesus. Slow to foretell, slow to hang on to, slow to prophesy. There was a pastor at a prominent church in San Antonio who just about six, eight weeks ago said, I am 99.9%, almost 100% sure that Russia will not invade Ukraine. We should be very careful about all such pronouncements, especially as we tie them to what God has in store. Sixth, there is still so much that we do not know. There's almost more that we do not know than we do know, it feels like at times. And so Jesus encourages us to not be distracted or diverted by the end of all things, but rather to be obedient in the midst of such to preaching, not from here on Sunday morning by pastor, but all of us proclaiming God's word and God's truth and God's love and God's kingdom where we are to the people around us and being faithful in the midst of suffering because there will be suffering. There will be suffering. There was for Jesus' early disciples. There continue to be for many of Jesus' disciples today. Do not be discouraged, distracted, or diverted from that to which God calls us because you are waiting and looking ahead to the return or coming again of Jesus. And then finally, we live in hope. We can live in hope. It is important to note what chapter 13 does not affirm. Does not affirm. There's no mention of a millennium. 
in chapter 13. There's no new Jerusalem. There's no rebuilt temple, no restoration of Israel or the state of Israel. No battle of Armageddon. No hints how and when Christ will return. About all of these things, Mark 13 is silent. Jesus is silent in Mark 13. All of these incidentals yield to the preeminent truth of the power and the glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise that his elect will be gathered to him. This preview of the future ought not to lure us to try to calculate when Jesus will return nor to fear what will happen when he does return, but to know that he will come to claim his own. His coming is his promise and the gathering of believers to him is our hope. There is a remarkably Jesus-centered truth in chapter 13. From the corners of the earth to the corners of the heavens, all people will be gathered to him. Which echoes what Paul wrote to the early Christians in Philippi. One day there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was and he is and he will be forever the center of all things. We see that in the book of Revelation when people from every tribe and nation are gathered around a throne room. There's one piece of furniture in heaven, a chair, a throne, on which the glorious Lamb of God sits and before whom all people will bow. May we take from this chapter and these verses therein up to this point at least that truth and live in at least that reality, striving to be obedient along the way until that day comes in which we hope whenever it comes, however it comes, but it will come. Let's pray. Help us to live differently, God. Help me to live differently. Knowing that there is a future and that you hold that future and that you have plans in that future that will be more than we can imagine but not beyond what our faith can handle. As we prayed at the beginning, forgive our closed-mindedness, our hard-heartedness, our tight-fistedness. Help us to live in a balance of eager expectation and also today. To the things to which you've called us, to the things and the people you've called us to love and serve and bless. May your kingdom come in your timing May your kingdom come and your will be done on and around and all over the earth as it is in heaven.